Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Andy Squires, thanks for joining me, man. Oh, man, it's so good to be here. This one's a long time coming. We've had some scheduling issues, but that's to say that I've been following you on Instagram for some time now. Mm. I don't know exactly how to describe what it is you do. It's not easily categorized. I imagine that's not a new thought to you. Yeah. How do you describe it? Well, that whole project, these, I call them little mini essays that, that accidentally happened. And I think the writing is, it's a response to the world that I inhabit mostly, which is the church world. It's the the world of faith. I'm a Pentecostal charismatic from way back. And so I think that the initial reactions in, in the beginning writings were, more of an attempt to critique my own tribe. But over the past two years, it looks a lot of different ways. It just depends on what mood I'm in that day. But sometimes they're just like narrative things out of my life. I would say some of it's just practical wisdom. I would say some of it's, uh, or or maybe I should say an attempt at wisdom. I, I That might be a, a wisdom might be too audacious of a, a word, but sure. the, the overall project is just me personally trying to make sense of my world, I would say. I mean, you're a great writer. I love reading the essays. Sometimes I really resonate with them. 
then mm-hmm. there are times when I tend to resonate less, and that's why I reached out to you, because those mm. ones tend to be maybe, would it be fair to say they're, sometimes they're kind of taking aim at either the sort of deconstruction industrial complex or the mm. the claims made by many deconstructing or deconstructed or deconverted former Christians I mean, is that that even sounds a little more combative now that I've said it out loud? But yeah, you you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's actually a fair assessment. I have personal concerns about the world I live in, and I think that it would be, you know, disingenuous of me to say that, like, make some kind of denial about what you've just said. I, I think that's a fair fair statement. The series is called Worries About Progressive Christianity. They don't need to be worries exactly. It doesn't exactly need to be progressive Christianity. But, you know, it's something about sort of left-leaning theology or praxis or whatever. And then I I like talking to someone who is, in some sense to my right, who's concerned about that, who has Mm -hmm. uh, disagreements or issues with it. So good. We've we've established— yeah. That, that, that we're in the right place together. At yeah. Least. Yeah. I guess I I'll start with a quote from one of your recent ones. And this is the only thing I have prepared. Everything else here is going to be organic and will flow from this. That's great. Quote, if the virgin birth and the resurrection are just metaphors, then to hell with them. End quote. Mm. That one struck me because I at this point, I definitely believe the virgin birth to be only a metaphor. Mm -hmm. The resurrection is more complicated. I struggle with it more. I think it's actually a a much more complex claim that the early Christians make than is the virgin birth. So already there's something that I notice. I don't put those on the same plane as each other. Those are like, you know, maybe the the resurrection, I, I don't know, 10 times more complex, something like that. Of, of a thing to unravel than sure. is, in my mind, the virgin birth. But they're both in the creeds. They're mm-hmm. both kind of, you know, of, of that style of Christianity. We might say they're weighted equally insofar as they're together in a creed. Although I don't think anybody would say the virgin birth is as important of a doctrine as the resurrection. I don't think you would say that either. Right. All right. We got a little bit to talk about there. Do you put them at the same level? Are we different already in that respect? Well, let me just go ahead and say this, that 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 quote that you just read, I I had internalized a Flannery O'Connor quote that someone brought to my attention Mm -hmm. later on. Um, But O'Connor would say that if the Eucharist is just symbolic, then to hell with it. Like that was her that was her riff on that. So I'm fairly aware. I'm fairly self-aware of of my own biases. And and I think any healthy conversation around metaphysical things like what we're having should be the, I guess a prerequisite for a conversation should be to, to address one's own bias. So I fully acknowledge that I'm not, I'm not making ultimate claims here as in I have proof of these things and anyone who doesn't believe according to the way that I do is just an effing idiot. That's not what I'm saying. I appreciate you saying that. And I'll just say briefly, I don't take you to mean that. What I noticed is that, oh, I'm I'm operating on different categories than Andy is. Yes. One symptom of the zeitgeist that we happen to be in at the moment, uh, James K.A. Smith said something that just struck me. Uh, so much. He 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 recently said that we live in the age of contestability, meaning nothing can be said 
without it being contested, right? That's just, that is the water that we are all swimming in. I, I agree with every fiber of my fucking being. <laughs> yes. And, and, yes. And therefore, maybe there are religious or philosophical issues that arise from that dynamic. But what I'm witnessing, I'm actually witnessing anthropological issues in human lives. When nothing can be known, it actually presents human beings a well, very interesting way, a, a way of figuring out how to live. How does one live? Mm-hmm. And, and I found myself in a situation recently where I, I was I was a part of a church where a discussion was being had, where even the claims of the creed were being challenged. And, and so what I what I figured out was that Christian distinctives that had had been traditionally assumed for generations were now up for discussion. And the thought that I had was, well, if the very brass tacks of our faith are no longer important, then what in the f- are we even doing here? Sorry, I hope that that can be edited out. But like, can I can I leave it in, please? Please go for it. Yes, okay. we swear plenty on this show. Okay, yeah. okay, that's great. So it really made me have to ask, what is the project? of the gathering of saints. What is that? Um, Because I I was around some people who stopped saying that the gathering of saints was about things that we believe and was instead rather that we're just all brothers and we love each other. Like it was, it was more the community focus shifted from, you know, I guess the critique around gathering around belief would be, well, what about the people who cannot give mental assent to the things that are being said? Well, my answer to that would be like, well, that's perfectly okay. Like you would be on a philosophical journey that every human being is on. Mm -hmm. But to me, at some point, if, if you're going to call yourself a Christian or maybe like, what's the project of following Jesus? Sure, there are ways associated with being a follower of Jesus. But what has I, I have felt what has been important for me is that there is something greater than myself or what my mind can make reason of that I give, I maybe submit myself to is the wrong term. But it's like, you know, it's it's like the old Bob Dylan song. You've got to serve somebody. And at mm-hmm. some time in a human being's life, like like you've probably seen this in my writings because I've said it over and over and over. It is a very human thing to need a God to serve. That's that's a very medieval way of thinking about it in, in the in the day and age that we live in. But I think that if a person is really honest with themselves, no matter what faith or non-faith they practice, there's some belief framework that they have given themselves over to. And people who deny that are just either maybe ignorant of that reality or they're just denying it. I don't know. But like, I, I, I believe that people who thrive the most 
give themselves over to a religious system that they maybe don't fully understand, but there's some submission to. Let's start with the first thing you said and find some common ground. Okay. So you talk about, you know, James K. Smith, and we're in the age of contestability. Yeah. Uh, I recently, uh, I chaired, I led a panel at an event last fall with three religion scholars on it. And I asked one main question of each of them from which the rest of it would be derived. Mm -hmm. And of the three of them, one of them gave me an answer. (laughs) The other two gave a version of, I'm going to problematize the question. (laughs) And it was very frustrating for me. By the way, patrons will have heard that uh, it's a panel from Theology Beer Camp back in the fall. If you if you want to hear this panel and how I navigate both that and a evidently drunk participant, uh, <laughs> patreon.com slash Dan Koch. Uh, but for our purposes here, I was really frustrated by that. I sure. was like, what the hell, guys? Like, oh. I recognize sort of the scholarship that you each do. And I understand that there are ways of interpreting the question I just gave you in ways that would have to be deconstructed in order for you to meaningfully answer them. Mm. But I'm pretty sure I didn't ask it that way because I'm also aware of that. And it was a hard question. It was a hard question about personal experience of God. And there is something very interesting that we have gotten to a point where the academic study of religion is so skittish to talk about the experience of religion. Yes. Right. And so in that sense, I totally agree. You made a jump, I think from that to the phrase quote, nothing can be known Mm. if nothing can be known dot, dot, dot. That's my sort of my first place to jump in is I don't know that those are necessarily connected. I think that there is a fashion right now that Smith is getting at that you are noticing that I am noticing that we're all frustrated by where like yeah. actually the the most prestigious thing you can do is not answer a straightforward question, but problematize that question. That That's shows right. that you're in, that you are hip to the current thought yeah. patterns, right? So let's yeah. just say we agree on that, but that's not what I'm talking about. There might be a version of liberal Protestantism or something that comes from that stream, that of the moment mm. thing. Uh, but I don't embrace mm. it the way that I understand that I try to that I am trying to understand Christian theological and doctrinal claims in light of science, the modern world, my own experience, mm. et cetera, is much closer to like Schleiermacher and Tillich, you know, nineteenth and mid twentieth century liberal Protestant thinkers than it is let's just tell everybody that everything is colonialism and then not answer the question. Right. Like that's not what I'm I'm not doing yeah. that. Yeah. And that's not what I'm interested in talking about. So I think we can say we agree on that and maybe we can set that that type of fashionable approach aside. That's great. Yeah. Okay. If someone really does feel like they're in an epistemological desert where really they can't grasp onto anything, people do have that experience. Individuals have it. Yeah. Groups, societies maybe have it more times than others. I mean, that's that's really tough and destabilizing. And a lot of the listeners of this podcast, 
have gone through periods or might even be in a period right now where they feel like nothing about God can actually be known or even have any sort of assurance about. One way I can hear your critiques or similar critiques kind of puts the responsibility for being in that place on the shoulders of the individual. I'm not saying you're Mm -hmm. making that Mm -hmm. claim, but then someone can hear that and go, well, I I didn't choose to end up here. Like I didn't choose that in 2016, all my extended family and my parents would turn to bizarre Pentecostal Trump prophecies and like, you know what I mean? Like, and pull the rug out from under me. So I don't know, maybe just, I don't know if you want to chat about sort of that, that aspect of it a little bit. Yeah. I'm not sure if I mentioned this earlier, but I do want to say to your listeners, I am by no means an academic. I am the most underqualified guest on this podcast. I'm sure of it. Barely graduated from high school type of a thing. So I I do want to submit everything that I think humbly and with assumption that I I can be wrong and that I too am working to figure this stuff out. So maybe, maybe when I write in that manner, especially with the way that one quote that you used, it it can appear stark or harsh. But just so we're clear, I take you as speaking on behalf of yourself. Like for me, if these are just metaphors, I am, I am uninterested. And, and I also don't think academic chops are, are a prerequisite to, for being on this show. I, I want to, I want to hear from you as you see this stuff. Right. So I think that that style or that tone that I take, I know I take it and, and it does actually, there's, there's an abruptness to it. I think that the emphasis on healthy doubt that I have witnessed over the last 20 years, which was so enlivening at first, it was like so many of us come out of very fundamentalist dispensationalist backgrounds that the very idea that we could doubt and God wouldn't strike us down with a thunderbolt, lightning bolt, was absolutely revolutionary. And I'm I'm really thankful that we came into that season. But I think the insistence on faith that I present, what I mean it to be is a relief. I, I mean it to be like a, a pressure valve relief. Because I see many people not finding the answers within deconstructionism that deconstructionism promised. I do sense that the same weirdness that I see in my dispensational Christian national Trump loving charismatic adjacent and intersected people, I see that same fundamentalism in those who have gone over into the progressive side. And it's it's almost like that same fervor, that same zeal that they were abused by in the fundamentalist world is what they've adopted in this other new world. And they seem as heavy, if not heavier, in their own personal lives and, and being than, than they were previously. Mm-hmm. Maybe my call or my cry is even pastoral. It's like you should venture out into all the places that your soul takes you 
read widely, read philosophically, read theologically, read, by all means, read fiction, go to all of the great thinkers of, that the world has produced and, and sit at their feet and learn and, and, and hopefully synthesize. And, but I always feel this thing within myself is that when I feast on all that culture has provided, I do feel fed and I do feel blessed, but not as much as when I sit at the feet of the risen Lord. And so I would say that the thing, the gift that the evangelical church did give me that I haven't abandoned yet, and this is going to be such a trigger for a lot of listeners, but like that personal relation piece, Mm -hmm. that personal relationship phrase, like that's the thing that I can't quite get over And I should add that I have had a very difficult relationship with God. Like if I've had a relationship with God, it has been fraught with difficulty. It's probably why you're a good artist. Well, thank you for saying that. I, You and Flannery both, right? Well, it's, it's hard to achieve just out of my own life. I need to be fed. The hunger that is within my human body. I've tried a lot of things that the world has had to offer, and I maybe am just responding to what my body is telling me. It sounds so arrogant to say, and so I don't want to make a universal claim because lots of people's bodies are speaking to them different things, right? And that's a whole nother conversation. But I think that's the reason why I keep going back to faith as an important emphasis in the human life. Okay, a lot to respond to. Again, this is fantastic. So first of all, you'll get no disagreement from me about the propensity toward a leftward fundamentalism from people who leave a Mm. rightward fundamentalism. Mm. I've talked about it too much to go over it in much detail here. It will will bore my listeners, but short version is just, it's easier to keep the same brain structure for lack of a better term, and just swap out who's good and bad than it is to forge new pathways in your brain. Sure. So totally agree. And you'll never hear me making an argument for that kind of a view. Yeah. So definitely agree. Where I think where our experience is missing each other. Mm. And I'll go with the personal relationship with Jesus stuff, because this has been for me also one of the most interesting aspects of coming out of evangelicalism. That term was very poorly defined, though used constantly. Yes. The joke that I say is what it meant was have your quiet time every day and don't masturbate. Yeah. What it really probably meant more often was accept the claims of the four spiritual laws and have your quiet time every day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But the way that that phrase was redeemed for me was later in life through reading mostly Catholic, but other non-Catholic contemplatives and mystics. And yes. And eventually about 10 years ago, starting a, a basic contemplative practice of my own. And that led to sort of visiting monasteries when possible and, and really, you know, changing from primarily meeting God in a daily Bible reading to primarily meeting God if we want to say that we meet God, you know, more times than others, if God's always there, but whatever you understand what I'm saying, experientially sure. meeting God from my perspective, more often in quiet 
silent or very low discursive prayer practices, yeah. uh, using the rosary, you know, like, and then also the Eucharist. So it's, it's funny that the Flannery O'Connor quote is about the Eucharist being symbolic. So yeah. I really resonate with that. But as I have gone that way, and indeed, as I have read those, I want to say thinkers, but I'd rather call them prayers, people who pray, they, as a group, now tell me if you've read this differently, they're a lot less concerned with the content of people's beliefs than are the non-prayers. Yes. And the, the theologians and the John Calvins and Luthers of the world. Yes. Yeah. So that's a bit of a disconnect for me. And yes. I encourage contemplative practice on this show when when it makes sense organically in the conversation, because for me, that's been so much more grounding than just getting all my beliefs right, which run into all these problems where sometimes it feels like none of these things can be known. It's it's so interesting to talk about suffering in the world that we're in. I mean, here you and I are 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 white males. I was raised, you know, lower middle class, but we always had a roof over our head, and we always yeah. there was always food to eat. And but but nevertheless, I, I have my own journey with tragedy, and there's like many chapters in it. I there there's some things that have happened to me in in the course of my life that I. I don't have an explanation for, and and God has failed to give me answers for those things so far. And I and I used to wonder about why the world wasn't perfect. I used to wonder why were things bad instead of good, and um, and of course they're not always bad and they're not always good. And so that that's a whole other conversation. But I want to say all that because the, your question about being triggered by some type of abusive parents or, or being, having some kind of experience where injures you and it gives you a wound so much to the degree that it's almost impossible not to see anything except through the lens of that wound. I think that's probably true of all of us to, to one degree or another, some more than others for sure. I do wonder if sometimes, especially in the prevalence of pop culture uh, psychology or pop culture mental health work, like uh, I, I, I'm the son of two clinical social workers. I'm I'm very aware of like the the world of therapy, and I think it's such a good thing. I think what I've observed is that there's such an overemphasis now on mental health, on self-care, on triggering and trauma. Boundaries. Boundaries. Gaslighting. Yes. It's it's (laughs) almost like we have talked ourselves out of the human capacity to endure through pain. To have episodes of this show delivered to your podcast app without any ads and sometimes with even longer conversations without some of the content edited out. 
Well, you can do that by becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. It's five bucks a month. And you get ad-free and more full-length, longer, uncut, unedited. There, There is some editing, like likes and ums and that stuff. The annoying stuff is still edited out. But the conversations are longer and they don't contain ads. And that's for these main feed episodes. In addition, as a patron, you get at least two additional episodes on your own patron feed. And you'll get a an RSS link sent to you that you can add to your podcast app. I'm not explaining this very well, but you'll basically open up the same app that you use to be, that you're listening to this right now on. And there'll be this other feed that says Dan Koch's Patreon episodes. And it will be this episode, but with no ads. And then there will be two more episodes every month that aren't on the normal feed. Okay. And does it sound like I'm talking to children? I don't really like the way I'm going about this, but you get the idea. And the most recent exclusive episode is another installment of the Generation Gap Culture Hour with Tony Jones and producer Josh. And we talk through a bunch of interesting stuff, including my return to my old church, the conservative one. I'm back for a limited time. And I talk about it uh, and a bunch of other fun stuff. I always love talking with Josh and Tony. You can hear that and all the previous Generation Gap Culture Hours and all the other previous patron exclusive episodes by becoming a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Okay, let's get back to the episode. My sense of that, and as someone training to be a therapist, you know, I'm most of the way through a doctorate. Yeah. I ought to be excited about all of the therapeutic language that's yes. becoming more popular and in the sense of like that there is a, an awareness of things like boundaries and self-care that I suppose that that is good. But then, of yeah. course, the, the pop psychology will always sort of over include. It will be inexact. Yes. People will think that they have a real diagnosis when they don't. Yes. And then. The actual tools for that diagnosis won't work for them. You know, so there's all these kind of pitfalls. But what I tend to think about the over-inclusive nature of it is just, oh, like that's just the thing that unhealthy people will latch onto in 2023. And in 2033, there will be something else that unhealthy people will latch onto. And the content of whatever the the words they're using is sort of irrelevant. It's that- you know, we all have, it's a very, like David Bazan, my favorite deconstructed Christian songwriter, who I have a lot of disagreements on in terms of ultimately a lot of where he landed. But, you know, I think that that first track on his seminal record, Curse Your Branches, you know, it's like all of this is about, you know, all these analogies in the Bible and these, you know, weird beliefs I was given in my assemblies of God childhood or whatever he was raised. Like it's all about the fundamental fact that it is hard to be a decent human being. Yes. yes. That insight I think is gold. And yeah. I don't worry so much about the sort of pop therapeutic thing. Cause I, cause I remember just like nineties versions of that and two thousands versions of that. And there will always be self-help books that are not 
research-based that will proliferate and tell people that there's an easy answer to their problems. Because everybody, there's always a million people who want to make a million dollars telling people that they have an easy answer to their problems. So I don't think of the, the current version of pop psychology as like especially nefarious. It's more like a normal background noise, yes. and this is the current version of it. But I, but I think where I was headed with that is that at least what I'm trying to do is give people a foothold on a framework. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and I actually have to categorize myself as it being in the same place as a lot of these people that are writing, you know, pop psychology books. It's, it's like. I have no qualifications, but I'm I'm trying to give language to Christians or not so that they can make sense of their life. Because mm-hmm. I, I guess I have sociological fears or sociological concerns, because if if we named like two or three of our our favorite former Christians or deconstructors or like like, um, you know, Bazan, obviously, but he's pretty low key. I don't. He feels he feels pretty healthy to me, actually. But, you know, like, you know, Gunger and, and some other folks of that ilk, the the difficulty for where they've gone is that they're having to build from the ground up a new framework. And and yeah. and, the, and the big ask is that or, or, or what they're saying to people is, hey, you guys. The evangelical church is a disaster. The Catholic church is a disaster. <laughs> yeah. the, the people who spent 2000 year, years building those frameworks are totally bankrupt. So what I'm going to do over here is start a, a podcast and a Patreon. And because I have come up with the path to enlightenment now, now hold on, before we go further, I, as a matter of best practices, I don't spend a lot of time talking about other individual people. I'm sorry. People. I'm so no, sorry. No, I yeah. love that you brought it up. And I okay. will say one, I'm not going to say a lot of things here. Yeah. But I will say this, that after or sometime toward maybe two thirds of the way through liturgists, Michael Gunger started a podcast called this. Right. And that, which he then changed to loving this because right. this was taken or something. I'm sure he means well. The first episode was called Enlightenment, and I listened to it, and the essential thrust of it was, this guy I know and I are going to talk for you about Enlightenment. Right. If I had been angry, I would have spit out my coffee. I think instead I laughed. (laughs) I was like, "Uh, I'm sorry? (laughs) Yes. So, so like, so, yes. I mean, I, like, but... Okay, I think we're getting closer to where the actual stuff is. So the, well, let's just keep going. Okay. But I, I'm with you on all of that, all and right. I Leave and one of damn. the things one of the things for me is I'm I try to be very careful about the limits yeah. of my competency. I also yeah. try to be careful about what I ask guests and what they have actual competency in. Sure, because I do think that I don't want to just be another guy with a good speaking voice and a Canva account. Yeah. Like that's not, ultimately that's not going to make a lot of progress, even though it might still give people language for their experience, which I think is by itself quite valuable. Yes. Uh, anyway. So, but here's the issue for me, basically all of these more extreme versions, sort of flashpoints that you're bringing up. I have agreed with you on all of them thus far. Okay. So we don't have disagreement there. 
Yeah. But let's let's talk about the creeds, because this is a place where I, I think we have a fundamentally different experience in saying, thinking about, writing about the creeds. So when I read in, I think it's the Apostles' Creed, it might be in both, he was resurrected on the third day, accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven, okay? He ascended into heaven. And I look at the Bible, I go, well, what are they talking about? He ascended into heaven. And I read the gospel accounts, which differ, first of all. He's around for a certain different number of days before he ascends. And then essentially he goes up into the clouds and ascends to heaven. Here's my problem, Andy, is that now that I know in the 21st century that first century people believed that the universe was like a three-tiered cosmos, the underworld below, earth in the middle, and the firmament above. Uh, the stars are like holes where the light shines through, the, you know, whatever, the he uh, heaven. It makes perfect sense to me that they would have theologized their experience with, with Jesus. And by the way, they really did have an experience with him. I'm not denying that. But that they would go, yeah, he he ascended to heaven. But I can't, like, he he went to the stratosphere? Like, what? You know, like, he would have, like, you, you start to go down very weird rabbit trails. So did God, knowing that they believed in a three-tiered cosmos, make it appear that Jesus's body was going up into the stratosphere, but then... Jesus disappears out of sight. Like, why not just disappear right in front of them? You know, all, all the stuff about like resuscitated corpse problems around the resurrection, which is not the only way of believing in the resurrection. But like, I get to these things. Virgin birth is actually a, even a better example. It's like, if Jesus, did Jesus not have male DNA? That's not, we don't like, where did his, why chromosome come from? Like, you know, like there are, there are problems. If you try and take the creedal language at any kind of face value. So what I then want to do is think, well, are there other ways besides face value? Because I pray in the Christian tradition. I pray to Jesus. I take the Eucharist. I have spiritual experiences taking the Eucharist. I, and, and of course we both agree on sort of the robustness of the Christian tradition to live an ethical life, to inform our values and our goals. Obviously we're not going to disagree on that. So I've got all that going, but I, I look at the creedal language and, and maybe this is like in some sense, the curse of education, like formal education. And I don't, again, I don't mean that pedantically. I mean that literally, it might actually be the curse of it, yeah. but like, I can't just look at that creedal language and go like, if it's a metaphor to hell with it, because a metaphor is all I got. That's the only way I can actually affirm it. And I don't see an obvious alternative to affirm it in a non-metaphorical way. The resurrection, again, is a little bit less clear, but probably there, if you put a gun to my head, I would say the resurrection is in some sense metaphorical in that it expresses something real about what Jesus saw and taught and the experience that people had of Jesus, which is true. Like it's true from God's perspective, but the language that they used in a first century context that I'm supposed to repeat back in a 21st century context, it's not true. 
It's not literally true in that way. There's a breakage somewhere along the way, linguistically. So I think that that's kind of the crux for me of where the, I'm glad we got to sort of figure out the things that we agree on. So I'm curious what you think about that. Gosh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fight you at all on your take, but I would just say that for me, it's such a gift. I, I it's such a gift to believe in these things. Hmm. It's, it's such a gift. It's, I feel like it's a privilege and I would say that with, without holding it over another person's head, like, oh, you must receive this as a, you're, you're, you're receiving this as a metaphor. Therefore you are an idiot, you know, like, yeah, maybe, I mean, I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I, I, I don't actually think there's probably any disagreement here at all because, because really what we're making, if we're trying to make sense of a metaphysical issue, which is actually impossible to do. And, you know, Paul talks about the gift of faith and, and I, I have to say, Chris Green talks about the elect versus the unelect a lot. And he frames it this way. He, he says, you know, the particularity of Israel being the chosen people of God was not for their benefit or their sake, although they were beneficiaries of that relationship, but it was for the sake of the nations. And the elect only exist for the sake of the non-elect. Those that bear witness, they bear witness for those that don't bear witness. And I think that there's really a happy place for people who proclaim the virgin birth. Who pro- I mean, there's an Anglican priest in Florida who occasionally direct messages me on Instagram after one of my essays. And he says this thing. It's so cute. He's like, Andy, you're a proclaimer. You, what you do is you proclaim things, keep proclaiming, you know, there's something that's very weak about that because I am not facing these things with a massive intellect. Um, I mean, if you sit at the feet of Chris or, or Brad for very long, I, I just, I become aware of all the things that I do not know, you know? And so is it a problem for me that I might be standing in church next to somebody who has some qualms about the confession that they're confessing? Oh no, not not at all. I have I have zero problems with that because I actually believe that God himself is fully persuaded by love. He's not persuaded by anything. He's not persuaded by how much I know versus how much you know. There's not an in or out club based on my faith gift on somebody else's. It's like the thing that he's persuaded by is love. So then the purpose of the creeds has less to do then with kind of the ultimate stuff from God's perspective as I hear you saying it, and is more about, I don't know, maybe something like keeping some normalcy, some regularity for a group of people that are gathered around something specific, such that we just don't, we just don't go around destroying foundations of buildings, you know, like go do a different building, but this building has this foundation and you can build another building with a different foundation. Is it, is it more like that kind of a a frustration? Yeah. 
Yeah, because because the alternatives are are so scary to me, Dan. Like that's what I'm wondering about. Like because yeah. what I see, like if I thought that the alternative was basically just agnosticism, then from a even like a public health perspective, yes, that's scary. Agnosticism yes. is not going to do as much for people as faith communities, but. This podcast, the 50 plus podcasts like it, and the roughly, I don't know, couple million people who regularly listen to all of them, not mine, but all of them combined or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I've got to think that we represent a genuine third option here that like it isn't creedal orthodoxy, quote, historic Christian orthodoxy, end quote, or nihilism, agnosticism, nothingness, uh, woo-woo spirituality, or whatever, which I do. I have some of that in me. But, like, a middle way. Like, I mean, I think that if I didn't think a middle way was possible, that I wouldn't do the show. That doesn't mean that it is possible just because I think it's possible. But, like, I think about the sort of practical erasure of liberal Protestantism from my upbringing as an evangelical they they yeah. truly attempted to erase the most populist <laughs> at the time the most popular form of christianity perhaps in america yes. if you count if you count catholicism and conservative protestantism separate from each other now there have been huge problems there obviously and that numbers have dwindled and the, and all the conservatives and all the catholics go ha 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 see we told you you were wrong the writers of left behind were, or whatever, all these movies I watched, you know, were right to have the liberal Protestant pastor be the one who calls into the radio show and tells yeah. everybody what just happened. Cause he, yeah. he knew, but he didn't believe like his fundamentalist brothers and sisters, but no, like, I mean, it might be that Attilic and Schleiermacher style by which I mean, I, I hate when people name drop without explaining by which I mean, you know, Paul Tillich's big phrase was God is the object of our ultimate concern that yeah. in, in the human psyche, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about God. And Schleiermacher was trying to understand Christ through a, a phenomenological, a human experience perspective that like Christ was always keyed in to God the way that we are sometimes keyed in to God when we are really letting the spirit flow through us really kind of like a religious flow state in our yeah. modern lingo. Jesus was constantly in a flow state between the father and him. And like, yeah. like I think, is that not a real option? Like I know that the, the actual project of Episcopalianism and Methodism has not turned out so great the way it was orchestrated in the U.S. in the mid and, and became big in the mid 20th century. But like, does that mean that these are really our only two options, you know? Yeah. And I think we're, we're right in the middle of figuring out that, what that, that other thing looks like. And, and I, I'm hopeful because, you know, I know a handful, maybe 10, maybe a dozen pastors who are successfully pastoring small local churches having this conversation that we're having right now and 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 I'll I'll tell you why they're working on this is because they're they're seeing two things 
talking with my pastor friends and then stuff that I've witnessed is that, and I, and I know we already said this, but, and I know this is not always true. So forgive me for if anybody thinks I'm generalizing too broadly here, but I, I have noticed folks that have walked away from faith. It, it, it seems to go like this. Oh man. If, if you start espousing that the virgin birth the divinity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ are only metaphors. What tends to happen in people is the first thing that they ask themselves is, well, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, th- and then they stop seeing the need for going places like a brick and mortar building where people go and they sing songs together and they hear something and take the supper, Lord's Supper. And then what tends to happen in and I'm, not everybody articulates this to themselves, but once they stop doing that, then they do other things like go off into agnosticism, which comes with its own set of problems, or they go off into the kind of new religion, new age, invent your own kind of thing that's happening everywhere now. And I'm not trying to sound like a fundamentalist. I'm not trying to stand in judgment. I I have all kinds of grace and compassion for anybody that attempts that experiment. But what I see more often than not is people turning their actual lives, their li- actual lives go to places that they never actually hoped that they would go. And so I feel yeah. like Roar talks about the wisdom traditions. Like there's a wisdom associated with Christ that's not just in the sermon on the mount do these things and your life will be better but it's like there's there's a wisdom that's very weak it's very foolish it it actually pushes against the spirit of the age that is very knowledgeable i mean we have the most savvy generation that's ever existed in the history of humanity before us and and to me this is the genius of the proclamation of the kingdom of God is that what it's calling people into is the gift of faith, this confession, whether it's metaphorical or whether it's literal, I'm not sure how it's taken is that important, but as long as we make it our confession and we give ourselves to the practices associated with it, I can only see human thriving. Now, granted, because we have such a long history with foolishness, foolish preaching, foolish theology, abusiveness, uh, whether that's found in Catholic world or evangelical world or or Eastern Orthodox world, there's like all of these corruptions that we are faced with. Yeah. And, and of course, that stuff must be acknowledged. But I think the summation that I have is that the best chance that humanity has to thrive is found in the human need to have faith, to have religious faith. Man, that that must be the underlying concern that's flowing out of my heart. Not only concern, but I have derived a lot of joy as well from my own life of following Christ. Maybe this is a, a pretty good place to end, actually, because, and I'll I'll give you the last word. I always try to give on these episodes the person the last word. But that question of flourishing, I think is, that's an empirical question. 
Yeah. Um, we can measure to some degree yeah. human flourishing. You know, there, you know, the, the various virtues, many of them can be measured. Uh, and there are very talented psychologists of faith and non-faith working on this stuff, you know, in, in, in the positive psychology world, many guests on this show, uh, like Pam King and, and Julie Exline and, and maybe 20 others. So one thing that's clear at the moment is that both religiosity and spirituality, a more loosey goosey new wave kind of new, new age woo kind of thing. They, they both are associated with a lot of these benefits. And I think more work needs to be done at the moment. My sense of the empirical picture is that I would rather someone be either religious or spiritual than neither. Mm. That like mm. the having that source of love, guidance, power in the yeah. in the twelve step language, higher power, yeah. right? Yeah. Like that does seem to be baked into the human cake. Mm. And so, insofar as the deconstruction of people's faith leads them to neither of those, that is to me the tragedy. Uh, the reason that I'm willing to have more space for the sort of more open-ended spirituality. Well, this is actually one thing I do want to get your take on before we wrap up. As I read more and more of the contemplatives, the mystics, yeah. these are the ones pioneering interreligious dialogue. These are the ones sort of talking about, you know, like if you're, if you're going to see a Christian writing about Sufi mystics, they're probably a, a contemplative type. Like those are like, so there is a kind of a, and in mystical experience, both within the Christian tradition and without, like I've just been listening back to the mysticism chapters in William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience, which is from like 125 years ago, these lectures he gave yeah. uh, with these huge taxonomies of all these accounts people have. In those experiences, all the belief-based and tribe-based and ethnicity-based and frankly creed-based distinctives tend to melt away. So it might be, for instance, that that's the truth and that the the institutions with all of the, the, the rituals and the creeds, that's what human brains inevitably do to encourage ourselves to regular be regularly be in contact with that ultimate reality. Yeah. But it yeah. might be that that stuff is all technically beside the point in terms sure. of it's, it's not the thing doing the work. I don't know. I, again, these are like the most interesting questions in the world to me at this point. Oh yes. I'm so with you. And by, by no means would I make any claim that those things were salvific. Like, like, yeah, not at all. In fact, no, just, know? just thinking flourishing, right? Yeah. Yeah. This worldly flourishing. Yeah. Gosh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to close. <laughs> yeah. I, that, I, I basically just opened up the widest possible vista there <laughs> and asked you to respond to it. Well, but I mean, just, just respond to that. Do you also pick up when you're reading the mystics and the contemplatives that like, oh, it, it kind of goes way beyond the creeds. Like it, it goes like, it's yeah. like always bigger than you can imagine, so to speak. Right. And, and I, I can't figure out why my insistence on, on the man, Jesus Christ prevails 
I mean, it could just be experience. It could just be I was ha- I happened to be born in the good old God bless US of A, right? I mean, but it doesn't make it wrong. No, like that's the no. beauty of of this model. Yeah. Insofar as I'm presenting any kind of a model is like, here's the problem to get back into the sort of nitty gritty of it is we don't have the direct words of Jesus. We just don't. Mm-hmm. We've got 40 to 70 years later, the gist of kind of the things he said and did. And, yeah. and then we've certainly got at least some places where theology is being put into his mouth that the early church had come to believe. Now, if you believe that that was through the work of the Holy spirit, there's no problem there, Yeah. but like it's, you can read the gospels through this lens of, of Jesus, the sort of very mystically connected person, whether or not he's divine, but like, and, and you can read, like he's frustrated that people are not getting this that yeah. they are so petty that they want to talk about we're sons of Abraham and they're not that they always want to draw lines. And, and when they ask him to sum up the entirety of the gospels or sorry, the law and the prophets. And he says, you know, what do you think? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, that's right. Do this and you shall have life. And then the guys, but, but, but Jesus, who's my neighbor. Then he tells the good Samaritan yeah. blasts open the categories. So I just, you know, I don't know. I I think there's a way it's not an obvious. I don't think it's obviously true that this more sort of open-minded interfaith interpretation of Jesus is true, but I do think it's possible. And it, I feel more comfortable with that kind of an interpretation. Is that the enemy or is that kind of spirituality? Is that contributing equally to flourishing? This is an open question in my mind. I don't know the answer. I'm just interested in it. Yeah, I, gosh, we could talk for hours on this. I don't think all religious projects are created equal. I I really don't. And and that's gotta be true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, but maybe the ones that have made it this far all contain a lot of wisdom because they work and that's why they've made it this far. Yeah. I I mean, think about the number of religions that have gone extinct. I mean, it's thousands, surely, you know, and we've really got like seven big ones and Mm -hmm. then some kind of, and then we have new religious movements that start up and most of those go extinct, but some of them continue and we can wonder what it is that they're bringing to the table that's working for people. You know, I think Mormonism, for instance. Sure. Um, You know, I don't know. Great questions. Gosh. (laughs) The ontological ramifications of this discussion for me. I'm going to be thinking about this for weeks, but feel free um, to text me or email me or continue <laughs> it on the side. I love it. It's my favorite but topic. My my summation would probably be personal and experiential. And I have to ask myself what something like the Bible really means to me, what something like the church really means to me. The what Eucharist. something like yeah. all of the different religious experiences that I've had, what do they mean to me? And then how do I relate those things to my fellow human beings? And why am I talking the way that I am? You know, you know, I just, I read this crazy article in Charisma Magazine this week about some evangelist who has a dream or a vision and he goes to hell. And it's, it's like, it's, it's confirming all of his existing dispensational biases and lo and so and behold <laughs> so his fervor is even it's greater than it even was already you know and yeah 
at times I find myself in, in rooms with people like this. And so I'm often confronted with being, you know, known as a quote unquote liberal and, and um, you know, people are afraid, people are afraid of me on the right. And then people are afraid of me on the left. I I've chosen a, a horrible route and somewhat self-sabotaging, but I do have to return to my insistence on the humanity and the divinity of Christ and, and the claims that he made in, in the, in the words that we have, Mm -hmm. they may be suspect, but for some reason, God, the Holy spirit, the heavenly father has chosen for this to bear witness to us. And so I, I, I think I'm sticking with that for now. And, and, and then, so in my writing work and in my music work, I'm, I'm trying to woo people, persuade people into that life of walking with Christ. And and hopefully people sense this in my work that I'm not asking them to sign up for the megachurch down the street or, or whatever, yeah, you know, I don't all, get that sense at all. No. Yeah. All, all of the silly versions that are out there, but I do, I do believe that there is a silliness associated with whatever version that you choose, you know, whatever, whatever church tradition that you find yourself home in, you're going to have to be okay with your crazy aunts and uncles being at the dinner table with you, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I think that there are there are ways of pursuing a life where ultimately you want all of your dinner companions to be as respectable or cool or interesting as you and that that lo- that road leads to death. It does. We we are we don't get that. <laughs> no. It's also the height of privilege. Uh but yes. it's also it's not going to work. Like if yeah. you, like we need to have contact with actual humanity. Amen. Yeah, that's right. I agree I, with you on that. That's so good. And like, I just, I was just imagining that part in Hebrews, like the, the, the faith hall of fame, you know, and Rahab yeah. and Moses yeah. and Andy Squires, who thinks he's sticking with this for now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. That's so good. That's so good. Maybe that oh. is, but, but that I do think being in this modern predicament to kind of go all the way back around to, to the zeitgeist, to oh, James yeah. K. Smith, like we do live in an age of contestability. I don't, I yeah. think that the answer is neither to fully embrace the contestability of everything, nor to pretend that there are no good reasons for things to be contestable, but to find oh, yes. some Aristotelian mean in the middle, some, some virtuous Mm. mean of like, okay, we need to, we ought to do something with science that they didn't Mm. have, but we ought not to think that we are the new masters of the universe and that a hundred years from now, they won't have all kinds of stuff that they know that we got wrong, which they will. So, you know, there's, it's that humility. Anyway, this was a great conversation, man. Man, I so enjoyed it. I I was I admittedly I was nervous, but I just I had the best time today with you. So, <laughs> man, thank you. I I know I tend to ramble, but I really appreciate you having me on. Let me do that. I don't I think you spoke at length, but I would not call it rambling. It's not like mm. a lot of it needs to get edited out because okay. it's redundant. It's yeah. like you gave me a lot. I had a lot of notes, you know, that we went through. I wrote down notes <laughs> from what you said. I kept it. 
I kept it organized enough. All right. I'll let you go. We'll let the listeners go. Andy, where would you like people to find you on the internet? We will put it in the show notes. Gosh, the the best place to keep up with me is on Instagram. I know that sounds so fuddy-duddy, but um, at Andy Squires, my last name is spelled funny, but it's S-Q-U-Y-R-E-S. That's just the easiest spot at this point. So Cool. And you have a a couple volumes of this poet priest uh like physical book that you've put together that looks gorgeous yes poet priest volume one is is basically gone but i have about 500 copies left of volume two um so yeah if anybody wants to purchase that it's it's just high-end design concept uh riddled with some rambling words you know and that's that you can get that at my website so cool All right, man. Thanks so much. Dan, thank you so much for having me. 